0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network and the Asian Studies channel. This is Victoria Lepashko, and today we are joined by Professor Enza Han, Associate Professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Hello, Dr. Han.
1: Hi. Hi, Victoria. How are you?
0: Good. How are you? And um, welcome to to New Books Network and Asian Studies uh, channel. And thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Asymmetrical Neighbors, Borderland State Building Between China and Southeast Asia, published by Oxford University Press in 2009. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And, um, you know, as, as interviews for New Books Network start, first I'm going to ask you, um, you know, to, to uh, tell us a bit more about your work, about yourself, um, you know, what, um, what made you interested in this project? How did you come to it? Um, you know what are you know what is it about borderlands that that made you write a book on it, um, and also in the in China's relationship with Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah. Um, so I came into um, the uh, studies of Myanmar, uh, Burma, and, and also broadly Southeast Asia when I started working at SOAS uh, School of Oriental African Studies in University of London uh, in 2012, and at the time I was in some ways, be, it, between projects. My first book project was on um, ethnic politics in China. And then, at the time, was I was, in some ways, looking for a new area of research that would be um, motivate me and also make it interesting. and um, So, it was a time... The timing of it was very interesting in the sense that um, um, at that time, around 2011-12, um, there were major political transitions going on in Myanmar. And then, and particularly relevant is that it also uh, was a hot topic at the time uh, was about changing dynamic uh, relations between China and the Myanmar. So that really made me interested in a in, in topic would like to you know, pursue further. Um, so then I started taking Burmese uh, language, uh, which was offered at uh, SOAS uh, for free for staff members. So I started taking Burmese for for two years. And then that's how I got into uh, sort of studies of Myanmar and also uh, broadly uh, relations between China and Myanmar and, and, and Thailand uh, uh, in, in in the process. So um, in at the time we have um, I have some colleagues who have strong connections with uh, some of the ethnic armed groups in, in in Myanmar. And that's how I made a, a first a field trip uh, to Liza uh, in 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 Kachin. In area occupied by the Kachin Independent, Independent Army, and um, right across the, the Chinese border, and that's how I started my field work uh, from two thousand thirteen onwards, and then um, that's how, in the end, uh, this book was the product uh, of that.
0: That's amazing, and it's so rare to find programs that offer Burmese and Thai and you know, uh, languages that are so essential to the study of Southeast Asia and Asia in general, but, you know, you, you just don't um, don't offer this, right? At, right. At I mean, university. So my,
1: my, my Thai actually can go way back. Um, I did my undergraduate at Beijing Foreign, studies, Beijing Foreign Studies University and I studied Lao and also like Thai is very similar to Lao. So I also learned Thai at the time. But that was like more than 20 years ago. And, uh, and then during my graduate studies at the U.S. I never really, uh, my research was mostly on, 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 China. So it was after so many, like in some ways after 20 years of hiatus, and I came back to the studies of, of, of Southeast Asia and in some ways it's quite easy to pick up Thai because, uh, you, you know, it was a language I learned when I was much younger. Um, but then somehow, you know, Burmese is much, much harder because I'm such learning in my thirties and it's, it's much more challenging. Um, but still, I quite appreciate, I quite like that, the fact that I can learn languages and also I saw us provide a sort of good, uh, very good, um, you know, environment like in terms of language uh, teaching, but also really good uh, library, library resources of of, a lang- of a materials uh, from um, from Southeast Asia. So that I really benefit a lot from from the access to these this materials.
0: That's great. That's great. And, you know, it's also encouraging for for our listeners to hear that, you know, you can go back to to things that you did in your undergrad or you know like these things sit with you or stay with you for a long time and yeah, I think you know
1: so. yeah but also it's never too late to learn a foreign language
0: <laughs> I agree I agree absolutely yeah so um you know as much as i want to ask you about burmese and thai and lao and everything um i think we have to to get to to the book and um You know, the book is comprised of nine chapters, including the introduction and the conclusion. And you have an amazing, rich bibliography in Chinese, Thai, Burmese and English. So that's that's for me. That was uh, very, very interesting. And, um, you know, in the introduction, you start by presenting the tense context at the border between Myanmar and China in 2013, the the year where uh, where you start. uh, Right. The, the introduction with. And uh, in this delicate situation, the question of comparative uh, nation building is of utmost importance and brings in notions of sovereignty, uh, cultural politics, state power, military power, and, and so on. And the introduction offers the key notions developed later in the book, um, such as, you know, you, you, you state uh, on page four that you offer a comparative historical account of the state and nation building processes in an organic upland area, that shares lots of similarities in terms of geography and ethnic diversity, um, but yet it um, has been increasingly incorporated into a set of neighboring modern states, uh, in this case, um, uh, Myanmar, Thailand, and, and China. And in doing so, the book achieves a few goals. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more um, you know, about these goals and how you conceive this comparative historical count between the three uh, case studies that you offer.
1: Yeah, um, so I think... Um, on, on, on the theoretical level I think um, um, this book is more about how we can understand um, a nation building and a state building as 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 as, as cross nat- cross national transnational kind of process rather than as something um, bounded by national boundaries as we often uh, think um, so that's one of the theoretical uh, perspective that i want to push forward but more importantly i think um, particularly in 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 um, in Western academia, and the studies of Southeast Asia and the studies of China are uh, quite arbitrarily separated, right? And in fact, many scholars have talked about how this demarcation of Southeast Asian studies as different from China studies was more a deliberate um, act during the Cold War period um, as for the purpose of counter-communism. And um, so many scholars have talked about uh, this sort sort of arbitrary demarcation. Uh, of these two areas of research. Um, but in fact, um, you know, China and Southeast Asia are deeply in- connected, uh, not simply because of geography. I mean, they share long border, and in some ways, the nation building process in what we can call contemporary China, that uh, historically are deeply tied with what was going on in its neighboring states, as well as in Southeast Asia. And at the same time, um, the, uh, the processes that we had witnessed is that historically, for example, in the formation of a, like a Vietnamese state or the formation of, of a Thai state, um, also can be traced to historical connections uh, with what we call uh, China uh, today. So that's why um, it's very rare to come across studies that put China Southeast Asia in a uh, same context, uh, other than, for example, people who studies overseas Chinese as a process of, of migration, um, let's say, since the 19th century. But still, historically, um, the, the, the process of, of, of interaction, um, not simply in terms of people, in terms of goods, but also in terms of religion, ideology, and many other things, uh, in some ways, we can call like, geographically uh, the mainland, right? In some ways, like, like right now, we call China with what is right now mainland Southeast Asia, before the arrival of modern states, we're essentially an organic whole, right? There's not any particular boundaries that was the line of division that we consider today as a boundary between states. But historically, it's more fluid, right? That people moving back and forth and uh, and there's not such a thing that we consider as, or sort of this, oh, this is China, this is Southeast Asia. You cannot easily differentiate that. Um, so that's why I, I, I hope from with this book, in some ways, try to push against this sort of, Arbitrary demarcation between China studies and South Asian studies, and somehow put them together into one uh, one volume and have some kind of communication uh, between them. And I think that is the intention, and I hope that achieves some element of that in in, in it.
0: I, I absolutely think so, and it is very important to to position them together, in my opinion, because you know it's. Um, Well, first of all, right, you would definitely go against academic boundaries, right? Or departmental boundaries. Um, but you would gain so much in terms of knowledge and in terms of conceptualization of different um, different notions, right? You, you do it for the neighborhood effect, right? The state and the nation building. Um, but also so much more, right? In terms of migration, in terms of um, cultural exchanges and, and so on, and ethnic studies. Um, right. nothing I think right?
1: uh, one of the main, main thing I want to emphasize was that uh, particularly the borderland we're looking at, right? upperland Southeast Asia the historically is more of organic whole in a sense that um, it's it's much more similar for example you can say that southwestern China with upland south upland uh, upper Burma or northern Thailand today then for example similarities between southwest China with uh, like let's say China proper or with like you know eastern part of China I mean, historically, there are more connections between Southwest China, such as Yunnan, with Shan State or with Northern Thailand, or with, uh, with with Lina, et etc., rather than with with the rest of China we consider as part of one nation, right? Um, so this is purely because of of the fact of geography, um, that it's much more deeply connected uh, as as an organic uh, entity. At the same time, that the purpose of the book was more to is- to, to, to explore and investigate how this organic entity that we consider in this upland Southeast Asia became so sort of demarcated and incorporated into different nation states uh, as a product of modern uh, nation building uh, process. Uh, I would say, I would argue, started pretty much more intensively uh, from the mid 20th century. Um, so that's essentially the, the 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 starting point of this project. It was to try to tell the story of how China incorporated its southwestern borderland, how Thailand consolidates control in northern Thailand, and how and somehow the 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 the, the, the failure of of Burma uh, to consolidate uh, its its control of, of northern uh, northern Burma um, because it continued to be the case of state fragmentation and with ongoing insurgencies and in fact, you know, in terms of the continuation of ethnic armed groups that along the borderland area continue today. Right? So I think that is a story that the book tried to, in, tried to achieve, to tell.
0: Yeah, And it does so beautifully. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really think um, these things do come out in the chapters and you know they're very well described in the introduction, um, as well are the the key terms, right? That you bring up. And um, my next question was was about them. Uh, whether you could tell us a few more details about the key terms that you you, you thought of to, um, you know, um, basically uh, bring you know the book together. And how are they interrelated uh, with the arguments that that you make?
1: Yeah. So I think there are two key terms. I think the book use uh, throughout and and in Mm -hmm. some way they are um, empirically difficult to differentiate that's that's basically nation building and state building right Um, and in 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 common uh, usage people often uh, use them interchangeably Um, and i think there are conceptual differences between nation building and state building um state building um in a more Weberian sense Uh, Emphasizes the presence of the state uh, in its um, military bureaucracy and and other elements of of modern modern state that make its presence uh, in the peripheral regions of of a state. (laughs) Right, there's a lot of tautology here, Um, but but essentially it emphasizes how um, and you know the 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 central state uh, managed to build up its. grassroots uh, presence uh, in, in a country. Um, so the indicators of such uh, state-building uh, process would be, for example, like uh, the introductions of a state school system, uh, in, in terms of the establishment of ad- administration, in terms of bureaucracy, uh, in terms of capacity to tax the population. Right. So in, 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 in uh, at least in, in political science literature often the ability to tax uh, it's, it's the population and, and the percentage of, of, of taxation coming from uh, as a percentage of GDP, taxation as a percentage of GDP often is used as as indicators of how strong a state is right so that's some of the, uh, the indicators I was looking at in, in the book was specifically on, on those things how we can look at. Uh, that the, the presence of state has been consolidated uh, in in a particular borderland region. Now, nation building is a is a totally different concept, even though people use it as as a substitute for state building. Um, so, nation building a nation we generally consider as as a group of people have shared common culture, common language, right, common identity. So nation building in this context, I define more specifically as how the modern uh, conceptualizations of national belonging has, in a very uniform sort of a standard, um, imposed from the central state, has been accepted and internalized by peripheral people that previously did not speak the same language, did not have the same culture, uh, and might have different, totally different. Historical imaginations, but somehow, as a result of this process of modern nation building, and then became uh, a Chinese, became a Thai, became a Burmese. You know, so that is 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 a process that uh, I would call nation building, right? In terms of ability to speak Thai, the ability uh, to understand historiographies of, of of Thai Thai nation. Uh, and that is basically the, the process how those, those northern Hill tribes later on became Thai, right? And um, same with how this, the ethnic minorities in southern, southwest China later on identified being part of the Chinese nation. Um, so that is essentially, uh, I would uh, conceptually differentiate between nation building and state building. And these are two processes, I think, obviously deeply integrate, uh, deeply intertwined with each other. Right. In, in some ways, you cannot talk about nation building without talking about state building. In some ways, you know, um, sometimes state comes earlier than nation. Right. In, in this process, in the sense that it was the presence of state bureaucracy, it was introductions of modern school, school system that produced outcome of a common nation. Right. So, in the sense that the nation was an outcome of, of the state effort to create this common cultural. Um, unity, and so I think that is is the process that I, I laid out uh, with the book.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and um, I mean, you know, I it took me a second because I was thinking, yeah, of course, you know, through education and the way it's imposed uh, by the state, right, and um, the ways in which textbooks uh, shape, right, um, ideologies and shape. Um, and you know it's it's a dual dual carriage way right that that happens in 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 the three three countries but you know also in the world so um but more so in, in states that are that neighbors right
1: right but also like me mean, I guess you know um conventionally I would say conventionally people tend to con- uh, tend to assume that nation comes early earlier in a sense oh there is in this nation later on they form a former state um but that's not that necessarily accurate for most of the countries in the world in a way that often out that the nation national belonging was essentially is an outcome of, of state action. Um, and particularly in this type of a peripheral, you know, remote sort of um, um, areas with variety of, of of ethnic minority groups living there. Um, they, the reason why in the end they become uh, in, you know, incorporated into these different nation states and as, as became the, the product of, of, of this nation building process um, is the outcome rather than the, 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 the cause. Right? So that's why I also I think there's, I, there's a need to differentiate these two processes
0: sure sure yeah absolutely and you know it's um it's it's a very important theoretical move right to to make in the first chapter because you know from that on you can um you can you know build on that um and i think that chapter 2 comes very very nicely you know uh, to to it and lays out the empirical and theoretical foundations um the, the chapter 2 it's entitled the neighborhood effect of state and nation building Right, and here my questions regards the bounty of indicators. You already mentioned one, but, you know, there are others as well. Uh, And there's also a lot of empirical data you used in support of the specific argument. So um, I was planning to invite you to walk us through the ways in which you conceptualize the differences between the three states in the borderland region, Um, you know, looking at uh, empirical data and all the work you've did in the field.
1: Right. Um, So... As I said early on, right, sometimes, often, um, the measurement of state's presence, people use um, percentage of taxation um, as, uh, as part of the national GDP, as indicator of, uh, of how strong the, the state will be able to tax its population. Um, and So this is a common, commonly used indicator in, in the political science literature. Um, but then empirically, it's quite hard uh, to have uh, good data uh, at the ground level, uh, in terms of, so for example, like taxation as a percentage of GDP, often can be obtained at national level, but not necessarily at the regional or local level, right? Um, so that's why um, sometimes uh, those indicators are difficult to compare in the same scale, as same unit unit analysis. Um, so so that means sometimes we have to look for alternative measures. Um, so that in, in in the book I used. Uh, literacy rate, uh, so in, which often is is outcome, uh, a, a sort of a proxy to understand how how much the state will be will be able to introduce the school system in the peripheral regions that you know people will become literate uh, in the language in the national language, right? Um, there's also um, indicators about health provisions. Um, so, um, you know, in, in a sense that many of those social development indicators, right, can also be used as substitutes for um, state presence. And that's the, the outcome of how strong the state is and to be able to deliver those uh, public goods for its citizens. And I also use some indicators about um, economic development. But then again, economic development uh, across the borderland often is difficult to obtain relatively comparable data, right? And this is much more difficult in in Myanmar's case, in the sense that, um, um you know, Myanmar state does not produce much statistics, uh, particularly for economic development in its peripheral regions, and uh, because some, you know, it's it, the state doesn't does not actually have much solid control. Um, so I also use some satellite data, um, looking at nightlight uh, images, um, which often has been used to. To, to as to measure um uh, economic activity um so we do see that disparity of of, uh, of, of economic development across the borderland between china Thailand and, and, and myanmar right so the the Chinese state and the Thai state tend to provide much more than than the Burmese state right there's more economic activities uh, on along the chinese border or along on the side of the Thai border than than within myanmar um, so these are all the indicators I used to, to at least roughly, um, um, demonstrate that is this disparity, right? Disparity in terms of how, how much, so, for example, the, the Chinese state and the Thai state have successfully consolidated that presence and the control over this, uh, borderland area. However, the, the Myanmar state has not really been able to effectively, um, do the same. Uh, so that's so. These are the, 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 the I, I need. I I thought there's there's need to provide some sort of um, like I say hard facts in terms of this, the the comparisons. Right? How much differences there are, uh, and then that's how I set up the the the, the empirical analysis uh, that we we see in other in in, in chapters follow.
0: Sure, and also, um, you know, we we shouldn't forget the fact that this uh, th- these regions are also uh, ridden with conflict, um, at least uh, right in the Burmese um, side, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So exactly. So the um, the the simple fact that the, the you know, in the Weberian sense, Myanmar, uh, so Myanmar, Burma, people often use interchangeably, right? But in the sense that the Myanmar state has not really sort of monopolized its its legitimate control violence, right? And that's with varying sense that, in a sense, Myanmar has this fragmentation of state presence um, within its its territorial boundary, right? So that's not the case in either uh, China or Thailand.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, of course, that there's some sort of spillage effect that, um, you know... Um, what I call spillage but then you very eloquently call neighborhood effect that that happens yeah, I mean, um,
1: it's, it's actually you're right it's, it's transnational spillage you know in terms of the inferences I mean we're, we're going to talk more later on later chapters but in terms of you know ideology in terms of like uh, economic development is all there is always a spillage uh, from from neighbors you know from from Thailand to Myanmar from from China to Myanmar etc
0: right right and there is some sort of historical pattern right that that happens there and we we get to that in chapter 3 um which you know it's, it's also entitled the historical pattern of state formation in upland uh, southeast asia right and then you you get more into the uh, historical uh, details of um of this region upland southeast asia border area in terms of the uh, the dichotomies that happened there and one of the most prevalent is the upland upland and valley right the, um, the the two that happened there. And, um, you know, I was just curious about a historical development of this relationship and how does it affect uh, and reflect the present day conditions?
1: Right. So so this, um, you know, the, there's one very prominent uh, book and scholarship on, on a topic was uh, by uh, James Scott, right, on the art of not being governed. And he specifically talked about those mountain people that there's... Um, the, the people who escaped uh, the 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 control of, of valley states, right? Um, yeah. So this is, in some way, this is 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 is, is a geographical factor in a sense that, um, that this part of the world is, is extremely mountainous, um, meaning meaning that the terrain was very difficult to to uh, to access, um, and because of you know high mountains, deep river valleys, but also uh, prevalence of tropical diseases such, such, as, such as malaria uh, historically um yeah. so, so that's why it, it created a um and sort of you know the, the different patterns of the human habitation um in uh, in this part in, in in this region that you have mountain people uh, who uh, usually uh, usually practice different type of agricultural practices and also did not have much centralized state bureaucratic Structure and in comparison with the central like valley states, which have access to like petty rice and irrigation and etc., they tend to be much more um, let's say um, uh, sort of uh, bureauc bureaucrat- bureaucrat- what's the right word? So in more bureaucratized, bureaucratized, yeah, bureaucratized uh, <laughs> in, in, in its, uh, its in its administration. Um, so the so the, the story I I, I I told in in chapter three was more how um you know the historically we can understand let's say the the, the Chinese empires um uh, you know the Qing Empire um, and also like Burmese empires and as well as the Thai kingdom etc they interact historically and then and one thing that we um we do not uh, talk about very much today is that this part of the world uh, historically, there were lots of uh, principalities, like small I would not I will not, not even call them kingdoms but essentially principalities, right this this so-called uh, like the die uh, principalities. so so these principalities, there are many of them, right? probably you can you can probably count like hundred of them uh, small so like you know uh, principalities. and then they historically they had, and different type of uh, uh, relations with those powerful empires in in uh, in its uh, you know its neighborhood, right? So they yeah. sometimes and and then they um, uh, some pay tribute uh, to to China, some pay tribute to Myanmar, to Burma, some pay tribute to 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 Thailand, to Siam, um, but then they were never really uh, part of um, the, the the bureaucratic administration until uh, much later in the 20th century. Um, so, so, those principalities today, they all disappeared, right? They have all been incorporated into these three uh, nation states. But historically, they were much more integrated with each other, right? There are lots of intermarriages uh, among them, and they, they have much more common sort of cultural uh, uh, sort of similarities with each other. And then so that is also the, the the story I was about mentioned that in in, in in chapter three how the prominent uh, the comparison of three prominent, um, um, die principalities like so one in in, in China so that basically that Xishuangbanna like Na, right which was historically a big, uh, uh Dai principality, um, and one in 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 in, in, in Myanmar today is Jiangdong Jiangdong is also a quite big, uh, principality and then. Also for northern Thailand would be Lanna. So these these three in some ways are comparable in terms of their size. Um, but then today they obviously become part of three different nation states. Um, and um, so so the, the so the, the emphasis in 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 this in this chapter was that how come you know this the, from the telling the story of these three different Dai principalities and their fate later on being. Sort of carved up into the three nation states, and how we need to understand uh, from the point of view of those city states, this this princip- principalities, rather than from the views of central empires, right? So from, from from Beijing or from 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 Ayutthaya or from 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 from, from uh, Inwa in Ava uh, in Burma. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that's why I, I think it's 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 uh, the, the 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 purpose of this this chapter was really to tell the story. Uh, Of this sort of uh, this region that was not very often told uh, from a very sort of this locally based vision, uh, so locally based view uh, of historiography, rather than from the viewpoints of the central valley states.
0: Um, Absolutely, yeah, and you know, as as you're talking, I'm also thinking about right, like blood relations, intermarriages, and you know um all of that 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 happened and i'm i'm sure it still has some resonances today oh,
1: yeah maybe. so today um so there are you know there, there's no nation states it's well, probably thailand right in some ways have more cultural connections with the, those like die uh die places you know so that like you know, um mm-hmm. in some ways linguistically um in, in some that's similar right but not necessarily the same um so um, so in 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 Burmese, in Shan State, right? Shan State is essentially the, the Burmese word for Dai principalities, um, and and also you have the southern China, southwestern China. You have like you know the uh, particularly like Xishuangbanna, uh, and as well as like in their home, there's also lots of like Dai speaking population. Um, right. So so these people even today, right? I mean there are tremendous amount of uh, cross border uh, uh, networks uh, linking them together. And also, you know, the other one I did not mention is Laos. It's similar in, in some ways culturally similar as well. Um, but then, and um, so they, so these these networks of people, right? Even though the the, the state border um, has been introduced, but then they maintain close family uh, connections and uh, and other uh, linkages, religious linkages with each other. Uh, but not simply them, right? There are many many other ethnic groups living in this region that. Are uh, in, in affected trans trans transnational transboundary ethnic groups, right? You can say like the Kachin. Uh, they, the Burmese call them Kachin, but the Chinese call them Jingpo. But they 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 have that very similar um uh, in terms of language and culture, and, and they do in, like you know uh, have deep connections across the border. There's also Wa. There's also like uh, Lahu. There many, many other ones like those groups living in mountain regions in this area, and then they're dispersed across the you know the different countries. But then they all maintain uh, such uh, cultural connections with with each other.
0: Absolutely, and you know also um, I think if we you know if we think at historical trauma and um, what what. Kind of brought them together. Besides, you know, blood uh, relationships and economic relationships, the fact that there there has been conflict in the area for a long time, and um, you know, uh, must have created uh, some relations or broken some relations that influence mm. how things are are today.
1: Mm. Yeah, um,
0: yeah, well, and um, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I mean you're
1: right. I mean you know, this is I mean, this is the historical story I, I, I told in the sense that were more connections and similarities in these people across national boundaries, right? But today I mean uh, sometimes we, we can we, as, as I mentioned earlier, then we, we have to admit that um, you know, the modern state has been effective in, in instill some sense of national belonging and also in terms of instill some sense of, of cultural uniformity. So uh, today, for example, you can say that you know in northern Thailand, many people speak centralized Thai uh, dialect, Thai language, right? And that's essentially the the, the result of the Thai school system. Similarly, Mandarin uh, as as the uh, so lingua franca within China and has also become more pop you know popularly uh, accepted uh, in this borderland. Uh, region which was not the fact for example 50 years ago right so these are all outcomes of, of modern state building
0: absolutely yeah absolutely and and you know i mean speaking of um, of historical trauma i think one important thing we have to to take into consideration is the chinese civil war and also you know um second world war and and you know um others as well but uh, what you know, what I'm trying to to draw the attention to is specifically to to chapter four, uh, right, entitled uh, "The Spillover of the Chinese Civil War and Militarization of the Borderland," and um, you know because here we we get to the KM, KMT's role and legacy, specifically in the border areas between the three states, and uh, you know starting with 1940s when the KMT played a significant role in Burma and uh, Burma and uh, Thailand. Um, and it was either by proxy or it was just directly, uh, you know, influencing politics. So, you know, my curiosity regards the uh, the um, you know some details about this important spillover, like how did it play in the three uh, three locales? But also, you know, if we bring them together as a whole, what can we can we say of this? Uh, the importance of the Chinese Civil War,
1: right? So the Chinese Civil War, I mean, today people usually you know uh, associate with Taiwan, right? But the Chinese Civil War also has deep implications for mainland Southeast Asia, and particularly for, for I would say, for Burma and, and Thailand. Um, so at the time, in December 1950, that's the time PLA entered Yunnan, and then you have the KMT retreated, and then they, they entered Burma. And then, and so sections of the KMT troops, um, the, you know, they, they occupied the Burmese eastern Xiang State for a, a decade. Um, so as a invasion army, right? Um, they 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 took control of, of this territory, and obviously as part of the Cold War intrigues, right? The reason why they occupied Eastern Shan State for such a long period of time was because of the Cold War necessities of counter communism, right? By the U.S. and um, through its proxies, right? So the Americans supported uh, the KMT. Activities in Eastern Shan State and provided them with logistics and other things via Thailand. Right. So Thailand was basically the, the proxy for American Cold War, uh, um, you know, campaigns uh, in upland Southeast Asia. So that's the reason why and um, the, the presence of, the, of the, the, the the KMT troops in in northern northern Burma has led to the direct militarization. Of the borderland area, and also the the the, 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 the outcome. The other outcome was the, the development of a, a military, military government uh, in Myanmar, in Burma itself. And I think that Mary Canahan, for example, has talked about this uh, previously. Um, similarly, in Thailand's case as well, that the the, the, the presence of the, the KMT troops and uh, in the in the Burma's Eastern Shan State, and later on after being kicked out from Burma, and then the they entered Thailand, so they occupied northern Thailand for some time, as by invitation of the Thai state, obviously. Um, but they they provided services for the Thai uh, Thai military. And they they were the buffer against the communist infiltrations from the north. They patrolled the border and and as militias, um, and then and, and 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 in some ways they they, they they were part of part and parcel of of the of the, 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 the development of drug trade, right, opium trade uh, from from this region. So, this, so we can say that, you know, the, the, the development of the Golden Triangle in the Cold War period as a haven for poppy plantation and opium, opium uh, uh, production was, was deeply tied with this history uh, of the Cold War and the KMT presence uh, in this region. Because the the opium was effect, it was was effectively used as the financer for the war activities uh, in uh, by a variety of armed groups in in the region, and um, so we do see the negative legacies of the KMT uh, uh, in in northern Burma uh, in in those northern uplands, Southeast Asia. That um that previously has not, I mean, you know, people do do talk about it, but somehow, usually it's, uh, many of the existing literature tend to be written by uh, people who are descendants from the KMT and they tend to to romanticize about, you know, the the duties of the the KMT to save the nation, which is China, um, uh, against communism and then the sacrifice they made in in this area. But then they often ignore the, the atrocities committed by the KMT in Burma and also the fact that they are in other people's territories, right? the day, they, they were invading army. Um, so, so those ones were what what during the Cold War, obviously, was 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 told as a way of justification for for the for the purpose of, of counter communism. But then today, when I look look back at this history, and this was actually, in fact, quite ugly, uh, sec, you know, ugly side of the of the Cold War, in a way that led to the destabilization of the uh, Burma's Northern. Uh, territories and also led to the development of, of drug trade and and then and and then and, and has continued continue, and continue to be uh, the center for for illegal illicit uh, drug uh, production right so that these are all the negative consequences uh, from the Cold war and also you know,
0: you know um, mm-hmm. a few of the uh... Um, the, the bad reputation in a way of the the golden Triangle, I mean, it, it's warranted, but um, you know with, with just having this myth of that uh, particular area. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's both at the affective and effective and you know political and economic um, you know, stages that um, you know the '50s actually in the Cold War, of course, influenced this this area to, to an extent that we we still see today. Mm. Um, and um, you know, influence the historical uh, development, um, and of course, uh, also the, the the revolutions, right? So the Cultural Revolution that happened, you know, during uh, the Maoist era and. And, you know, others, and the, as, as you entitled Chapter 5, right, Communist Revolutions at the borderland. Um, there are uh, multiple moments of unrest in the borderlands. And uh, China has a strong support for communist insurgencies in Burma and Thailand during the 60s. Um, and that, again, has very long-lasting effects. Um, so you know, kind of going on the same idea of um, as in chapter four, where we looked at KMT's uh, role. Um, I was wondering about the Cultural Revolution and the PRC's influence uh, over the state and the nation-building uh, efforts that happened uh, in the other two countries, uh, specifically during the Maoist period, but also afterwards.
1: Right. So, so during the, the mid 1960s, that's the time when you you have domestic radicalization uh in in, in China and then also in terms of Mao's intention to export revolution uh, around the world right and then particularly in its immediate uh neighborhood right and then, and so that's why we do see that a, di- a direct link link between um the Chinese uh, government and communist insurgencies in Burma as well as in Thailand um, so the, the, the restart of the Burma's Communist Insurgency in northern Burma um, as a continuation from what the Burma's Communist Party had did earlier in lower Burma. And also the start of the Communist Insurgency by, Com- by the Communist Party of Thailand uh, in 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 northern and northeastern uh, Thailand uh, from the mid-1960s. And so during this process, there were, um, um, you know, uh, Financial, um, logistic, and even personnel support from uh, from China to, to 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 foster revolutions in 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 these countries. Um, so the um, So the legacy of that was that the the, the the presence of this insurgency that went on for in Burma's case ended in 1989. Uh. In Thailand's case, like, started earlier in the early 1920s. Sorry, in the early 1980s. Um, so the um, the legacies of that um, was the, um, the the presence of um, the, in, in Burma's case more specifically in a sense that the Burma's Communist Party uh, had um, many uh, legacy groups uh, which we today we call them ethnic armed groups but then they they were previously all part of Burma's Communist Party and um, in Thailand's case that the state was much more um, the Thai state was more. Uh, effective, perhaps, to respond to, to respond to the um, to the challenges provided by presented by the the, the counter in, the, the insurgencies, and uh, and then you know the people have you know uh, and then the, through the use of border patrol police and then uh, managed to to carry out a more successful counterinsurgency campaign and. Um, and not in term, not simply in terms of military uh, counterinsurgency, but also through the process of, of, of consolidating its its state presence by introducing like Thai school system, etc., and also through fostering development programs in in the peripheral regions, and then somehow um, managed to contain uh, the insurgency, but also later on, uh, you know, uh, through a, nas- a series of national pardon, uh, amnesty, and pardon. That all the uh, Thai communist insurgent, insurgents were uh, were incorporated back into Thai society. And That's why today you don't really see much of those legacies uh, of the of the insurgencies during that time. But in Burma's case, uh, the, the the communist insurgency at the time continued to to fester uh, today. Um in China's case as well, um, during the Cultural Revolution period, um, the southwest border was. In fact, the target of a revolution by the, the Chinese state as well. That means that um, the 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 Red Guard youth, right, who uh, who were sent down to the countryside, but also to the borderland, right. So the the the, the, the you know you look at those those slogans from the Cultural Revolution. It, it not simply mentioned going to the countryside, but also means meant that going to support the borderland, right. Um, so, uh, 治, is, is, is the Chinese Mandarin is Bian, right? "Bian" is bianjiang right? That's basically the peripheral borderland. So, yeah. uh, in southwestern China, um, like in 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 Xishuangbanna, and as well as in many other peripheral ethnic uh, regions, received large number of those youth, urban youth, um, from. Um, from the rest of China, from, from Beijing, from Shanghai, from, from, from Chongqing, from many other places. Um, so the presence of those, uh, those m- mostly Han Chinese youth uh, in the borderland uh, has an indirect fact of, of culturally um, sort of um, have an have a imprint on, on the people and the landscape. Uh, in, in in this area, right? It is it was the time more Mandarin uh, education will be introduced, right? And and you, and, and you start to encounter those uh, Mandarin speakers and basically that's how this sort of uh, cultural uh, common language started to develop, right? Um, so it was also uh, during this period, many of those like state, uh, state farms, were introduced uh, to produce rubber and etc. They also, you know, um, change the landscape of, of this tropical sort of jungle region, and then uh, made them more sort of suitable for uh, economic development and etc. Right. So you you do see this both uh, physical as well as cultural um, consolidation of the state uh, in terms of its landscape, in terms of its its cultural and um, uh, 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 um, relation cultural influences in in the region so, so that's uh, essentially the, the whole when we talk about communist rev- communist revolutions at the borderland it was not simply just um you know the, the like militarization but then they also have many other uh, political and cultural legacies as well
0: and, you know, again, um, um, you know, on top of that, right, the Cold War that was looming, right, mm. uh, over everything and um, the, the, the consolidation of the state and the nation, as we, we you know, uh, we define it today, uh, was essential in this, you know, gearing up towards this, this goal of, of constant crisis.
1: Mm. Right? Um, right, exactly. And then in some ways, um, you know, we can say in, in China's case, right, um, you know, nation-building, state-building were the outcome of a revolution, right? And the same for Thailand and, and Myanmar as well. Lots of times it, it is through war and it is through uh, insurgency and counterinsurgency that the state managed to, to consolidate uh, or failed uh, in, in Myanmar's case uh, in terms of building this nation, building this state,
0: Right, right, right. Absolutely. And um, also, um, just to, to make the transition to, to chapter six, uh, dynamics of transboundary economic flows. Um, also, right, the, the consolidation of the state themselves was also done through, through these economic um, uh, exchanges. Um, either legal or illegal, but, you know, it, the economy and the, the construction of a, of a solid economy um, were, were important parts in, in the process. And um, the, the chapter here, right, brings us to the economic perspective, but um, also specifically zooms in on this cross-border economic um, exchange um, of goods and people. Uh, mm-hmm. And that uh, happens asymmetrically. Um, you know, from one one place to another, and the numbers are different. Um, but here you mentioned two main processes, um, and I was curious what they were and how do they connect with with the state building endeavor as we've seen it so far.
1: Right. Um, so for me, to understand the economic dynamic uh, in in this uh, borderland region, then we first have recognized the asymmetrical dynamic between. China and Thailand as two more advanced economies in in comparison with the backward uh, Myanmar uh, economy, right? So when you have this imbalance of economic development, um, this asymmetrical economic relations, so on the one hand there is this sort of a pulling effect from both China and uh, Thailand, um, in a way that um, you know um, people. Tend to migrate from Myanmar to work in Thailand, to work in China, right? And then natural resources also tend to flow from Thailand, to from Myanmar to Thailand, from Myanmar to China. Um, at the same time, you also have these um the the spillover um, the economic and occult, uh, economic influence from uh, from both China and Thailand. In a sense that um, the how should I say like the, there are more um, circulations of, of Chinese currency within Burma, uh, because many play, particularly in the borderland region, uh, the, the Chinese currency tend to be used more often than Myanmar and um, Same with Thai baht, uh, Thai baht also have some wider circulations around its border around within Myanmar a uh, borderland area. Um, in a sense, so that indicates. Um, that econo- the, that the economic sovereignty in a set, from uh, from myanmar's uh, uh, perspective is actually less than what we see on the map right? in a way that the myanmar states economic sovereignty actually um, has much more limited capacity um in comparison with its two neighboring states and also during this process we see that the uh, exploitation of uh, Myanmar's natural resources by uh, actors coming from Thailand, actors coming from China. Um, so many of those uh, borderland and uh, development projects these days we observe uh, in Myanmar, Shang State or Karen State, Kachin State, right? Um, they are uh, mostly carried out through this, you know, the, the, uh, many of those actors who were, who were actively involved tend to be from China, tend to be from from Thailand. Um, so it was this, as I say, this asymmetrical uh, relation that we do see that economically speaking, the flow of of, of people, flow of goods, flow of, of of resources, they have a particular pattern in a way that something flows out from Myanmar to its neighboring states, and then something. Uh, come back to to Myanmar mostly in the form of, of finished products, right? Um, in terms of you know, electronic uh, product, uh, elect- electronic products in terms of daily uh, consumer products, etc. But they all tend to be produced in Thailand, produced in China. Uh, so it, so that's how you see this. You, know, you can I will not say the symbiotic relation, but it's sort of kind of the 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 one who basically provides these kind of raw materials, etc the people and labor, and the other produces these finished products and sell it to Myanmar, right? So that is the outcome of this asymmetrical uh, relations.
0: Right, 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 right. And, you know, also, uh, of course, relations, um, you know, uh, interstate relations and globalization, I, I would think, um, you know, that allowed for uh, manufacturing plants and, you know, raw product, raw materials to have these patterns and mm. then come back right into Myanmar as finished products as opposed to um, to you know um, being manufactured there so right um,
1: right, right right so it's, it's, it's much more common for example to see um, the extensive use of, 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 of let's say the Chinese uh, economic um, how should I say uh, venues uh, for transactions right, um, right. Um, so these days, for example, people talk about uh, the extensive use of like WeChat Pay or, or, or Ali Pay. And um, because Myanmar state doesn't have any capacity to regulate those things, right? And um, but it's all through this um, uh, transnational uh, economic, uh, globalized uh, economic transaction that um, obviously benefits the more powerful than the, the less one, less powerful one.
0: Absolutely, of course, and. It also has implications, right, for the international relations um, um, arena in the area, but also, you know, um, uh, globally speaking, and um, you know, to, to give a, a different pole of, of attention, also national identity, right, that forms in these uh, these areas. And I think with that, we can move into chapter seven, right, where you you offer a comparative um, approach. Um, and the, the chapter is entitled Comparative Nation Building Across Borderland Area. And um, this idea of, of identity in a volatile context is, is quite interesting to me. And also, um, I, I, I think that the, the, the chapter brings up the importance of ethnic connections that will sculpt right, all of these relations and flows and, and conflicts to a certain extent. So, um, you know, I was wondering how the national identity concept Plays out in the borderland area you analyze, and what are the forces and ideologies at hand um, there?
1: Right. Um, So in this um, chapter, I talked about um, the 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 role played, different roles are played by 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 China's nation building project uh, as well as Thailand's nation building project um, on on the influence on Myanmar. Right. So in Thailand's case, um, the You know, because of the I mentioned earlier, the the, the historical and cultural, linguistic ties, and that the Thai nation has with many of the Thai-speaking, you know, principalities uh, in Myanmar Shan State, Um, that's that's the reason why uh, you do have this. Obviously, not that mainstream, but you have this, uh, uh, you know, uh, Pan Thai sentiment, uh, you know, in, in, in. in thailand in some in, in section of the thai society that emphasizes con- con- connection with them and also the need to support them right um so so many times that you do see the um the identification culturally uh, speaking of of many of those shang uh, you know principal shang, shang, shang people uh, more with with thailand because that's also the place that many of them were choose to migrate to, 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 work and to live there, right? And um, so in some ways, um, Thailand often is presented as this sort of external, uh, let's say, uh, homeland, not necessarily like the true, but in some ways the cultural homeland in a way that a lot of people do identify with the co- Thai culture because it's more linguistically similar to, to many of the Shan population in, 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 in Myanmar. In the China's case, um, the nation building, uh, uh projects that it in- introduced, for example, this um, you know, multi-ethnic nation, right? Um, sort of this, sort of the, um, the 50, 56 ethnic groups in China, they're all part of the Chinese nation. And then there's sort of a promise of ethnic, auto- uh, ethnic autonomy, uh, etc. right? So this kind of things that people, um, you know, in Western scholarship, for example, people tend to dismiss those things uh, as, as, as fake. Right? And particularly, I mean, which probably is, is the case that when we look at like, you know Xinjiang or Tibet, etc., it's more historically uh, content uh, contested. Yeah. But in this southwestern border, um, people often do com- make comparisons between what's happening in China with what's happening in in Myanmar, right? So in, in terms of a uh, lot, people look at those like sort of uh, cultural autonomy. Uh, provisions in, in china um you know it is it is the case that despite for example the increasing popularity of mandarin uh, language and um, there's still you know uh, the, the, the teaching of ethnic languages in in, in primary schools in, pla- in in some places etc and it's also at least on the facade the presentation of, of, of ethnic cultural expressions um so that and in contrast with that, and in, in in Myanmar case it's much more direct, brutal uh, enforcement of Bur- Burmanization, right through military military activities and uh, and also the banning of the teaching of ethnic languages, et etc. Um, so so that's why um, people do consider that you know the the, the Chinese model as better in comparison with what's happening in Myanmar. you have ongoing insurgencies, etc., um, so the result of that was that people living the same ethnic group we mentioned earlier historically have lots of ties across the border, and they live on the side of, they, they live on the Chinese side of the border and tend to identify more with the Chinese state and uh, Chinese nation. And as a result of, of this comparison from what we they, they observe of what's happening in Myanmar, right? So that's why I I looked at this kind of different kind of processes of how different states. Uh, play a different role in the transnational uh, nation building processes in uh, uh, happening in in this region, and then um, so um, I think um, obviously the, the reality of this is much more is it's more messy, right? It's messier than than what we 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 try to, to tell. But I think the overall um, sort of logic of things, right, in terms of how Thailand had influence on um on Myanmar, on Myanmar's Shan State versus how the China's nation building uh, projects have implications on the you know Kachin people and Wa people, and is 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 interesting to tell, right? So for example, you know, in the Wa state, right? I mean, the Wa state effectively um, identify with part of the Chinese. Like, you know, they use Wa to, you know, kind of, they use also more Mandarin speaking uh, than Burmese speaking uh, things like that, right? So that so these are all outcomes that we can. We now observe, but then the causal mechanisms are, is, is actually what I try to identify, identify in this chapter is that it is this comparative kind of uh, uh, framework that we cannot understand what's happening in Myanmar just looking at Myanmar itself. We look at what's happening in, in China, what's happening in Thailand.
0: Right, right, right. And, um, right, we, we also see, I think, in, in this chapter, as well as in the others, but here, when we, we kind of think about the ethnic, uh, connections, right, um, we, we see the neighborhood effect, um, at play um, in 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 effect. And it's very you cannot, in my opinion, right, you cannot tell the story effectively if you don't consider all of these flows and influences and you know the, the communication between people and how they identify with one state or another or one policy or another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, also, but, you know, uh, as you say, in Chapter 8, there's also a lot of contestation that happens. Um, so far, you know, we, we talked a little bit about historical trauma and about, you know, the war and and things like that. But, you know, there's also daily contestation that that happens and... Um, but also political and, and economic to a certain extent. And chapter chapter eight does does get into that, and um, you do speak about continual contestations at the Myanmar or China Myanmar border, um, and that in itself has an intricate history, and it's based on, on on you know points that you you brought up in chapter one and two. But um, I was wondering, how is Myanmar carving a place for itself, both nationally and internationally, as it feels pressure? Of all types, both from China and Thailand, whether that's economic, whether that's political, um, you know, it's 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 coming to to it.
1: Right. right. So, um, so this chapter talks about the ongoing uh, insurgency uh, in Myanmar. Right. Uh, Myanmar is still the country uh, that um, have uh, extensive ethnic armed groups, and the, the the conflict continue to to go on. Right. And. And then this, is, so this chapter particularly talks about the restart of the, uh, the militarization, or the, of the, of the, of the mil- militarized uh, conflict. Because um, previously there was this uh, ceasefire process um, um, started from the early 1990s. And so that means many of those ethnic groups that even though they maintain their arms, but they, they decide they sign this document with this, the Myanmar government and then decide to you know, not fight, right? So then we do have this uh, almost two decades of relative peace, despite the fact they continue to hold their own arms, right, occupy their own territories. But from two thousand eight onwards, um, and the Myanmar state um, started to pick on different ethnic armed groups and they try to eliminate them, right? Um, but they couldn't, um, or they, they did eliminate some, but did not manage to do that, Do that in others. Um, so so that's that's when we start to see an uptick of of militarization, uh, military activities uh, in in this region, right? From um, the the fightings in Kokan and then the, the fightings in Kachin State and then and etc. Um, so so since two thousand eight onwards, that the the, the uh, how to say the, the conflict between uh, ethnic armed groups versus the Myanmar military as well as among Many of those armed groups within themselves has um, has picked up pace um, uh, than before. Um, so this chapter essentially talked about um, well, what's what what is what actually is happening uh, at during this time, and how do we understand um, the uh, the logics of this uh, the, 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 the intensification of a military uh, activities uh, between varieties of. Uh, armed groups in in the region and also i talked about um particularly uh, in the more contemporary period and that china started to play much more a prominent role in 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 trying to you know uh, broker a um, um some kind of peace dialogue uh, among uh, various ethnic group, ethnic armed groups in, in myanmar um so um. so you know when people talk about the the um, the, the peace process in, in Myanmar, China played a much more active role uh, in it, and um, because um, some of the big um, ethnic armed groups that ha- they have, you know, as a, during the Cold War period, had more connections with the Communist Party of, 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 of Burma, and that's also why the reason why they have much closer ties with, with China. Um, so, um, so that's the reason um, why we have observed, for example, the um, Chinese delegate uh, will be present at many of those peace dialogue um, uh, peace dialogues and then um, so that's why you know we, we, we the chapter also ponder uh, what will happen in the future um, for this this region that continue to see this sort of this, you know, this instability and militarization and whether we will be able to see some type of a, um, um, resolution right but then at least Currently, uh, the Myanmar's internal peace process has been stalled, and um, there has not been much progress, um, at least uh, in you know uh, in this region, right? and, and partly because the attention that Aung San Suu Kyi's government initially put on, for example, the twenty-first century Pan Long Conference, is actually trying to create more domestic peace dialogue. But then, as a result of the uh, Rohingya crisis which is on the other side of Myanmar's border with Bangladesh and then much of the the attention of the suchi's government um, as well as much of the, its political capital has been spent on that rather than focusing on on, on this side of border with China uh, and with Thailand um, so that's why and the um, right now there is there's no clear indicator on in how uh, the peace process in Myanmar were going to uh, come out um, right and then um, the, the, basically, there's still remaining this sort of low intensity, uh, conflict in a way that, you know, periodically you will see, like, the two arm, two, two arm group clashed or something, like, you know, one people died, but it's not sort of an active war zone, right? it's it's kind of different kind of a conflict, low intensity, uh, conflict, uh, continue to, to go ahead, uh, in, right. in Myanmar's case. Yeah.
0: Right, right, right. I'm thinking when you when you're saying you know low, uh, you know low intensity. I'm thinking it's uh, it could be also an, an attrition type of, of um, yes. contestation, right?
1: Right, um, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the armed groups in Myanmar they, they they are not. Some of them are very small. You know, they probably only have like 100 something. You know, soldiers, and um, so sometimes they act as I don't know like militias for different people, right? right? And sometimes they 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 uh, they. They try to extract uh, resources from public, from 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 the population, and they try to tax uh, the, the the control of particular, um, you know, uh, goods, right? Sometimes it's it's, it's drugs, sometimes it's, it's other type of trade, uh, timber trade or whatever, right? So so then so sometimes so the, the reason for that, the rationale for the existence, and um, uh, increasingly become. Um, not as what they what they claim for autonomy or other things, right? It's basically for the, the economic um, greed in a way, right? For that's for their own survival, but also for the benefit of the the leaders, etc. So, so that's why they, 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 then it becomes a totally different logic for the, the for the armed groups to, to to perpetuate themselves, and um, and then also the, the, the you know, so that's why we, we have to understand that this economic logic in many of those. Uh, ethnic uh, armed groups that uh, continue to operate uh, in in Myanmar's uh, territory.
0: Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, and as you say, it's a very complicated um, and intricate, um, you know, sum of forces that are at play there. Whether we're talking about politics, or you know these these groups, or you know whether we're talking about history that, um, you know, we can read about in the news or, you know, we can hear about it, but actually knowing the history and the politics of the area, um, it's, it's more important and might give a better uh, grasp of what's happening, right? Um, and um, I think also uh, the, in, the, in the concluding chapter, right, you, you highlight the importance of the neighborhood effect and its uh, pivotal role in state and national development, but also, you bring up the project of national, of regional, sorry, uh, regional economic integration that was spearheaded by China and sometimes by international bodies, um, if I'm not mistaken, such as um, uh, ASEAN, right, and, and others as well. And um, I was I was wondering about the stakes that uh, you know we could talk about here, and specifically, how can we think of the neighborhood effect? As a paradigm that could be instrumental in understanding dynamics in borderland territories across the world, um, you know we we have some in in Russia, we have some you know with with Ukraine, we have others right in in Asia, also Africa, um, Latin America, um, you know whether we could use this this paradigm to to open up right a field
1: of of understanding. Yeah, um, so I did um, talk about sort of the, uh, the the comparison of this. Neighborhood effect, right? Not in in this case, obviously, it's mostly on China and its neighbor, neighboring states in Southeast Asia. But we we can also observe a similar pattern of relations between, let's say, Russia and its near abroad, near near abroad, right? In Ukraine, in in Belarus and uh, in Central Asia and Caucasus, etc. And same with like the the U.S. uh, with regard regard to Central America, right? It's projections of American economic an in, uh, influence in, in Central America. Um, so we do see these kind of big power, right? The asymmetrical relation with its neighbors and often have a, you know, how should I say, imbalanced implications. Right? And then usually the, 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 the neighboring states often are not necessarily the beneficiaries of, of the of the more powerful neighbor, right? Yes. Right. Let's put right. it that way. Um, the, um, so on the other hand, I also talk about more contemporarily uh, how people, for example, are very interested in terms of many of the regionalization that has been uh, spearheaded by, uh, by 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 China's uh, increasing uh, sort of amount of capital going abroad, right? Um, so we do observe uh, many, um, let's say, projects emphasize on connectivity with uh, Southeast Asia uh, in terms of building of, of highways and building of railways and uh dams, and other things, right? And, and cre- creation of, of new institutions that um, will, will facilitate further economic uh, uh, integration. Um, so that, will, I always say, probably that is going to happen um, more intensively in the future, in the years to come, right? That um, there is going to be more of this type of regional integration that with more of a China- uh, hue, right? It's a more sinocentric centric uh, style, right? And um, and partly is because um, you know, the, the, the economically speaking, um, Southeast Asia, ASEAN, right now is the biggest trading partner for China, and and vice versa. And um, and then and also, I mean, in the contemporary period that you we see, you know, particularly during COVID, right? People start talk about you know the the, the end of globalization, um. And perhaps there's going to be of globalization in a a more conventional sense. But then um, people do say that um, instead of globalization, there might be more regionalization, right? And in a sense, people, countries might improve their economic relations much more with with the neighboring states than with far fewer places. Um, So that's why um, we do, I, I hope that, you know, the, the, um, this will become the the, the, the starting point for ha- for for us to understand in uh, for the changes to come in, you know, in 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 the next decade and, and after right? and, and lots of things are happening right uh, in, in terms of like, the building of high speed rail uh, network yes. is going to complete in in Laos next next year right? and then eventually will connect to Thailand etc right those are things that are ongoing right um, we don't know yet right of what might happen right and but then there are particular perhaps some kind of projections can take that in in the end there might be more chinese influence to come to southeast asia and how we can understand that
0: yeah absolutely yeah and you know it's um it's an ongoing process of course the the current uh world um um world I want to say situation, but uh, you know, context, uh, global context, right? Also influences the ways in which um, you know infrastructure is developed uh, in Southeast Asia and in Asia in general. So you know, time will tell, but of course, predictions can can be made. Um, and. I would love to talk more, but I really think we've taken a lot of your time. So right. you know, the, the, the last uh, question no, I have.
1: Oh, now and fifteen minutes already. <laughs>
0: yes, it flew by. So um, I was one. I wanted to ask you uh, whether you could tell us more about your current projects.
1: Right. Um, so currently, I'm actually from. As I just mentioned, I think I'm, I'm uh, in terms of what's what might happen to understand um, the. the, the um, the changing uh, dynamic of relations between China and Southeast Asia, but also how to understand uh, Chinese influence in Southeast Asia. So yeah. um, right now I'm working on a project um, specifically looking at this, um, this, this phenomenon and then, and then try to differentiate between influence as a intended social action versus unintended consequences by a variety of Chinese actors in Southeast Asia. Right? So what I mean by unintended consequences in the sense that people, tend often, people often tend to assume what's happening in Southeast Asia as a you know, deliberate scheme you know, designed by the Chinese central state to have domination or have other things, etc. But in reality, it's not the case. Um, lots of things happening in Southeast Asia, they are carried out by a variety of, of actors. Many are private businesses um, for their own profit and other things. Right. And, and sometimes the, the state make one policy, but then the outcome of that in Southeast Asia might be totally unintended. Um, so, so that's why I try to differentiate this sort of intended versus unintended, but also differentiate between state and non-state actors uh, in terms of their inference, uh, their presence and the impact uh, in Southeast Asia. So this is going to be uh, my next project I'm currently working on.
0: That's fascinating, and I look forward to to reading more of it maybe uh-huh. a new interview on that and um, I want to thank you very much for taking thank the you. time to How talk we, to we us did. today
1: yeah we, we talked for quite a long time, but I think it's quite good we covered uh, almost all the questions and then uh, yeah, we, I think I talked extensively um, but,
0: so. <laughs> th- 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 but you know that that is all about like you 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 really have to to get into details and I'm very happy to. To, to listen and
1: you know oh to, thank you very much for having me yes it, sure. it's a pleasure to, to, to talk with you about about this book, book project but also like let me think like what i will have to do next right and, I'll even, <laughs> and, then, and hopefully uh, my next project will come out uh, in time
0: absolutely thank you so much dr han
1: thank you victoria